Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. On Thursday, September 23rd, Reverend Robert Sirico, co-founder and president of the Acton Institute, debated Joshua Davis, executive director at the Institute for Christian Socialism at the St. Augustine's Catholic Center at the University of Idaho on the question of capitalism versus socialism. How does each system serve a Christian conception of a healthy society? You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at actin.org slash actinvault. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Father Chase Hasenroll, Father Robert Sirico, and Dr. Joshua Davis, fellow Muscovites and Idaho Vandals, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Grashin Krzyzewski. In my role as the Director of Intellectual Formation at the St. Augustine Center, I am tasked with writing and researching, teaching courses at the intersection of history, politics, and philosophy, giving a monthly lecture series and writing and moderating that which I would like to warmly welcome you to tonight, our second annual Great Debate, which pits head-to-head the aforementioned gentleman who so kindly accepted our offer to participate, Dr. Davis and Father Sirico. Capitalism and socialism, and how each system serves a Christian concept of society is the pressing topic tonight. One that will be debated in a tripartite format of opening arguments, question and rebuttal, and live debate. At the start of each section and the subsections therein, I will pose to them and to you, the audience, the pertinent questions. At the end of the three sections, there is a final 15-minute closing argument segment where Dr. Davis and Father Sirico will have five minutes each to state their case a final time. Following that, open questions will be fielded from the audience for half an hour. We do ask you, please, show our participants and your fellow audience members the highest level of respect in refraining from any noise-making and or disturbances while our participants are speaking, and likewise, during the open question segment, that you only pose questions related to tonight's event. We are truly fortunate to have such high-caliber speakers with us tonight. Joshua Davis is the Executive Director of the Institute for Christian Socialism. An Episcopalian theologian and educator, he has taught systematic theology and ethics at the Institute for Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago and at the General Theological Seminary in New York City. Additionally, he has taught Catholic studies at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Father Robert Sirico, President and co-founder of the Acton Institute and pastor of Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish and Academy in Grand Rapids, Michigan, is a regular writer and commentator on religious, political, social, and economic issues with select appearances and publications on the BBC, CNN, and EWTN, and in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Forbes. He is the author of the book, Defending the Free Market, The Moral Case for a Free Economy. We are all here for a special evening. I thank you indeed for being here, for being here to listen to something I believe is sorely missing in our contemporary society. Honest and open debate that while we, all of us, may come to this room with differing opinions on the subject at hand, certainly share an equal interest in rigorous intellectual exchange. Being many of us, professed followers of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, find our appetites ever whetted for discovering the truth of all things. 
Before we begin, I'd like to at this moment welcome the pastor of St. Augustine's, Father Chase Hazerol, and the president of the Vandal Catholic Club, Eli Lohman, to share a few words. Thank you. On behalf of St. Augustine's Catholic Center and Eli with the Vandal Catholic Club, we welcome you this evening. I just really want to echo what Grosham has said as far as the purpose of this. And as a, as a Catholic, I know not everyone here is Catholic, not either of our debaters is Catholic, but it is a value that we have to be able to engage society, that the church lives in the world and the world matters around us. So it's also important, as Dr. Grosham was saying, that we uh, exhibit and, and um, enter into healthy dialogue, tolerant dialogue, where we can share ideas and not destroy the other person, but to share and to hopefully build each other up. Um, so with that, I will begin, we can begin the evening. I do want to make just two practical notes. One, if you don't mind silencing your cell phone, it can really uh, lose, the, I know as a, as a public speaker at times, you can lose your train of thought if a, if, a, if a phone rings. And then the university wanted me to remind you that it is their policy to wear masks. It's up to you to whether or not to follow that policy, but I need to remind you of that policy. So without further ado, may the debate begin. Our first section is opening statement. It is 20 minutes long. Each speaker will speak uninterrupted for 10 minutes, sharing with you, sharing with you who they are, what their position is for the first time. Dr. Davis will speak first. Thank you, Gracian. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Thank you for your hospitality. Uh, thank you very much. It's a wonderful opportunity to be here. Uh, you're never going to believe this, but I put a lot of thought into what I'm wearing tonight, actually. <laughs> um, I, uh, I have a t-shirt with Rosa Luxemburg's face on it, and I thought that I would wear that as a symbol, uh, a sign, first of all, of my commitment to my belief that socialism is the telos of democracy. Uh, and also as a sign of the Jewish women that I consider my teachers, Jillian, which also include Jillian Rose and Ellen Mason Woods. Uh, but then I figured what better way to do that actually than with Mary and her Magnificat. So also pretty much captures what I'll be emphasizing tonight, right? Uh, lifting up the lowly and sending the rich away, if you will. Uh, I was expecting some laughs for that. <laughs> um, so let me start. I've already used up about a minute, and I want to make sure I get through this. So in a nutshell, uh, my argument is capitalism appears to be only a form of economic production and distribution, when in fact it is a religious form of life, and an idolatrous one at that. So capitalism cannot serve a Christian conception of a healthy society, and further, it's inimical to Christian discipleship. Our situation as Christians in capitalist society is not unlike that of Christians under Imperial Rome. Christians were compelled there to serve a God other than the one incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, and so our role as Christians under capitalism is to put a spoke in the wheel of its reproduction and embody an alternative. Along the way, as I make this case, I'll argue that capitalism is inherently antisocial, it inhibits democracy, and depends on human domination, 
But all of this is what the Bible means when it calls something idolatrous. Now, I want to make clear that my argument is a normative one um, at the level of ethics and theology. While I may comment on matters of consequence and utility here, the question I'm raising is what Christians ought or ought not to cooperate with. So let's begin. Here's a series of quotations from saints. Share everything with your brother. Do not say it is private property. If you share what is everlasting, you shall be that much more willing, to, you should be that much more willing to share things which do not last. That's from the Didache. From Ambrose of Milan, you are not making a gift of your possession to the poor person. You're handing it over to him. You're handing over to him what is his. John Chrysostom, not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. Basil of Caesarea, the bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry man. The coat hanging in your closet belongs to the man who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the man who has no shoes. The money which you put in the bank belongs to the poor. You do wrong, you do wrong to everyone you could help, but fail to help. These are not ideal statements. They're quite literal. They were no less challenging to the original audience than they are to us today. But we are inclined to dismiss them as naive, and the reason for that is that our entire society is based on the embrace of a form of property that these saints are disavowing, and the rejection of a form of property that they are embracing. They're rejecting private property right. They're defending universal inclusive property right. That's the idea that when God gives existence, God gives equal right of access and use to enjoy what is necessary to sustain life. When they make this argument, the saints are speaking against the cornerstone of Roman private law, which granted a person the exclusive right to use all the things in his household, and he was identified as a person, persona, precisely as a property owner. Everything else that was owned in that household was a thing. Cups, plates, farm produce, people. This statement by these saints is specifically spoken against that form of legal right. It is the legal for right, however, that we universalize. Now, there's a caricature of socialists that says they disavow property. That's wrong. Socialists ground everyone's personal right to exclude others from, say, your toothbrush or your home in this fundamental, universal, inclusive property right. When Basil says the bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry person, he means it literally. It does belong to them. Capitalist society does this very weird thing where it grounds your right to exclude me in our common social bonds. I'm sorry, it doesn't ground your right to exclude me in our common social bonds. It derives our common social bonds from our right to exclude one another. Capitalist society universalizes private property right, and in fact, it identifies human being, personhood, human dignity, and personhood with that right to exclusion. 
If that doesn't sound weird to you, it's because the identification of personal dignity and property right is so fundamental to our society that it appears natural to us. If it does seem weird, then good, because you're not far from salvation. Because this is complete nonsense. You cannot derive social life from an original exclusion. Let me put it differently. If the right to exclude is universal, then ipso facto, it's not particular, but common. You can't move from the particular to the universal without facing the particular. That is, when you make private property universal, it becomes common property. You can do it the other way around. You can make, you can make a particular out of the universal, but not the other way around. But you can move from the universal to the particular. When you try to do the opposite, it's irrational, and that's what makes it immoral. It's immoral because it treats the relative, private property, as though it were absolute, universal. And that's the basic definition of idolatry. The Hebrew scriptures call that bondage because that's, what, that's what's going on with the Pharaoh. That's point number one. Let me carry this further. If capitalist society is based on this basic contradiction, then what holds it together? And the answer to that is religious. What is the capitalist religio? What's its sacrament? That's the commodity. It's buying and selling and producing things that are made to be exchanged. That's what holds us together. That's a religious act. But it's veiled under its secular appearance. That's point number two. Here's point number three. You're not free to opt out of this religious practice. The only way to survive in capitalist society is to participate in the sacrament of commodity exchange. It's how you traverse from your private property into society, which is where you access all the stuff you're otherwise excluded from, but which you need in order to live. But if you're excluded from everything, how do you get access? Well, you bring your person, your otherwise excluded self, to society and you say, I'll work for you in exchange for access to what I need to survive. And it's just here that something very important happens because your person, you, a person, have to become a commodity, a thing to be bought and sold in order to have access to what you need to survive. Am I a person, am I a thing, am I a free agent, am I an owned object? In capitalist society, you're both. But your personhood only appears in society as an object of exchange. Your personhood is purely abstract. Concretely, we are all things to each other. The commodity is the race that mediates the sacramentum. It even functions ex opere operato. You can't, you're just doing it makes it real. This is how we live. We're all using each other in just this way at all times as objectified means to our own ends. Note that this is the exact opposite of the Eucharist, where the things we share in common become the means of meeting one another in the body of Christ and receiving the person of Christ there in his fullness. If we, this is, well, no, my, final, my final point, I have 12 seconds. In this situation, we are not free agents at all. Our agency is a function of capital's own agency, which is constantly valorizing itself, and that's our God. 
It's no mistake that there's a bull outside of the New York Stock Exchange. That's the process of valorization. It's, it's, a, it's, a, divine, it's a divinity within society. We call it capital. Jesus called it mammon, and he said you can't serve both of those things. It's clearly demonic. That's my opening statement. Thank you. Good evening. I'd like to express my deep appreciation for the invitation to engage uh, in this timely conversation about the morality of economic matters from the historic categories of capitalism and socialism. Of course, I found it irresistible to accept the invitation of a certain professor with a distinctly Slavic-sounding name to come to Moscow to debate socialism. And so it is that I find myself this evening at the University of Idaho. It is good to begin such discussions with definitions, and there are any number of kinds of socialisms and capitalisms at play here. Yet whatever else may be said about socialism, whatever else socialism is, at its core, it is about the social or state or some form of political ownership and control of property and the means of production, as you just heard. It is this aspect of the ideology of socialism, among others, that disqualifies it from being compatible with a Catholic, and I would add, Christian vision of a healthy society. That is the case, that this is the case can be seen in the papal encyclical that initiated Catholic social teaching, Rerum Novarum, in 1890, in which Pope Leo XIII declares that private property is sacred, his word. Not absolute, mind you, but sacred, because it is the fruit of human labor mixed with nature, a word sacred that no socialist would ever use in relation to private property. Socialists may express many and varied sentiments about solidarity, equity, care for the marginalized and the poor and the vulnerable. All these sentiments that I would agree with and champion because as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I believe that to minister to such people as these and to be in solidarity with them we, in fact, are encountering Christ himself, though in a distressing disguise, to quote St. Teresa of Calcutta. But at the center of a specifically socialist claim, let us make no mistake that it is not love that is the instrument which fulfills the vocation, but force and coercion. Indeed, indeed it is the fist that is the means to achieve this goal, not the outstretched arms of the Savior and his embrace that we see on the cross. You may observe this for yourself by looking at Mr. Davis's t-shirt carefully and by looking at his website where you will see prominently displayed immediately the fist superimposed over the cross. The socialist confusion with Christianity is identified for us by none other than Winston Churchill, who once quipped, the socialism of the ancient Christians was based on the idea that all that is mine is yours, but the socialism of today is based on the idea that all that is yours is mine. It is only fair at this point 
to require of me that I define what I am defending under the rubric of capitalism. And in this effort, I turn to someone who is well familiar with diverse forms of socialism under both its fascistic model known as National Socialism and its Soviet model known as Marxist-Leninism. This is the definition which I identify with. St. John Paul the Great said this in the aftermath of the collapse of real socialism in Eastern Europe. I quote from his encyclical Centesimus Sanus, number 42. Listen carefully to this. Returning now to the initial question, can it perhaps be said that after the failure of communism, capitalism is a victorious social system and that capitalism should be the goal of the countries now making efforts to rebuild their economy and society? Is this the model which we ought to propose to the countries of the third world which are searching for the path to true economic and civil progress? And then he answers. The answer is obviously complex. If by capitalism is meant an economic system which recognizes the fundamental and positive role of business, the market, private property, and the resulting responsibility for the means of production, as well as free human creativity in the economic sector, then the answer is certainly in the affirmative, even though it would perhaps be more appropriate to speak of a business economy, a market economy, or simply a free economy. But if by capitalism is meant a system in which freedom in the economic sector is not circumscribed within a strong juridical framework which places itself at the, safe, at the service of human freedom in its totality, and which sees it as a particular aspect of that freedom, the core of which is ethical and religious, then the reply is certainly negative. The Marxist solution, John Paul said, has failed. Close quote. Like John Paul II, I, too, prefer to call this system that I defend a free market over capitalism. And if I am to be criticized for this, then I insist that I be criticized not for some form of crony capitalism or state capitalism or mercantilist capitalism or hedonist capitalism or financial capitalism or any of the other forms of hyphenated capitalism that employ the state to advance its agenda. To invalidate my case for the free economy, which is not based on ideology or politics, but on the very nature of the human person, which I hope to elaborate in the course of this evening's discussion, you must first indict my idea of what a free market is, which can be described simply as follows. The market will exhibit all of the shortcomings and failures that people in their peaceful acting will exhibit, for that is, in reality, all the market is." Close quote. You see, I reject the notion that to stand in solidarity with the poor, one must identify with socialism, especially when you understand what the poor, that what the poor require is not some series of platitudes and sentiments rooted in the philosophical ideas antithetical to the very institutions that will enable the poor to prosper. 
that will enable them to produce wealth and retain it, to protect their freedom and their liberty of enterprise and their own self-determination, as John Paul II said. Another th threat I see posed by Christian socialists of Mr. Davis's approach is the priority that he places on the political over the personal and the cultural. They neglect to call for limiting the power of the state because they see the state as the embodiment of the will of the proletariat. This has two deleterious effects that are interrelated. The first is that it increases the role of power in society, which you hear them speak of frequently, and fails to see the potency, not of power, so easily abused, but of authority, the potency of authority. Power is an external form of constraint, whereas authority is an interior acquiescence to something that one sees as true, as authentic, and thus authoritative. The former is based on coercion, while the latter is based on freedom. A second danger that is related to this is the way in which such grand notions of social organization and revolution easily become abstract and erode the very personalist nature of the human community and solidarity. This is no, no truer than socialism's view of the family. In the Marxist view, the nuclear family emerges as the last stage of capitalism, and as a result of the development of a class system, a class system society built upon monogamy and private property. For Marx and Engels, especially in the origin of the family, private property, and the state, this needs to be destroyed, they say, in order for a full egalitarian society to come forth. What is key to Engels' mind is that the economic relations have polluted the previously pristine state of human sexuality by the emergence of the private property regime. This is Engels that is designed to protect the private interests of the patriarchy and family life. Engels identifies with the premise that there are three main obstacles to this vision of social reform. Private, what he says, private property, religion, and this present form of marriage. In one sense, Engels sees what many of the in the contemporary debate failed to see namely that private property is the institution that can and does reinforce the nuclear family and vice versa. The alternative, free love under a socialist regime will create chaos to the extent that it lacks the ability to assign responsibilities naturally provided in families under private property. The economist Ludwig von Mises offers a succinct dismissal of this absurdity when he wrote, Quote, it is certain that even if the socialist community may bring free love, it can in no way bring free birth. It is clear to see the contrasting visions of life and society between Engels and St. Thomas Aquinas, who saw freedom, prudence, economy, and family well-being safeguarded by private property. Indeed, much of the premise underlying the communist opposition to private property comes out of the assumption that the right to mine and thine is the source of conflict rather than the means to avoid it. Thank you. We move to our second section of the debate titled Uninterrupted Questions with Rebuttal. This is a 30-minute section broken down over three questions in 12 time periods. 
So for the first question, our first speaker will come up and will answer this question in three minutes. His opponent will come up and rebut that argument in two minutes. The man who rebutted the argument will stay on the podium for the, and do the, the three-minute thing again, state his three-minute position, position, and then the opponent will rebut. And I will come back to the podium, pose a second question, and again for the third. This is the nature of uninterrupted questions with rebuttal. Question number one deals with politics. I want to ask both of our, our participants, why does your system allow for, or even aid in the creation of, a just and equitable and successful political philosophy? Father Sirico will speak first. <coughs> The system that I'm articulating um, allows for the benefit to society as a whole, primarily because what it allows to have happen is people to bring their own intelligence, their own awareness of their needs, subjectively understood, the awareness of their family, of their neighbors, of their own priorities as set by them in freedom, to the marketplace, and thus informing the marketplace of what is needed to sustain that society. Now, that is part of it, but that's not the whole of it. Because we have to remember that each of these people who so comes to the market comes with a certain culture, with a certain set of values. And that system of values is what must form the market, is what John Paul II described as the religious premises or orientation or culture that is necessary for a market to be not only free, but to be good as well. It's what John Paul referred to when he talked about freedom in its totality, not just in its economic dimension, but in its total dimension. And so I think that when you look at what is called in economics the knowledge problem, you come to understand that when the market is controlled by central planners and bureaucrats and the like, what ends up happening is the constriction of knowledge that would otherwise exist in a market as reflected in the consumer's demand for goods and services, as well as in the pricing system that can cue producers as to what the needs really are. High school debate, and I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> I did policy debate, not we can do so. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of, I am having flashbacks. But, so, notice that he's avoiding the question of commodification and precisely how it works. Right? He's talking about prices. Pri pri like Marx, I, and, I mean, I like Marx, but Marx is not the be-all and end-all, but Marx makes a basic distinction between value and wealth, material there's, there's always, there has to be, in order for a market to work at all, there has to be a disjunction between prices and value. That's how it works. So yeah, prices can tell you information and they can do all kinds of things. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the nature of a society. The commodity is not just a thing that we exchange with one another. That's how it appears. My claim is that it is a religious action because it binds the whole of society together. You're not free to opt out of it. You don't have access to healthcare unless you can buy it. And the reason for that is because someone, a corporation, has the right to withhold it from you. 
unless you can purchase access to it. It's a basic, now you can talk about this as an exchange between persons, yeah. Commodity, money, commodity, we exchange it, right? But there's also a process of value production that's involved in it. And in that value production aspect, you and I are the objects of that value production. I need you to be this object for me so that I can access the things that I need to live. That is not okay for Christians. There's no way. Jesus comes to me and the poor person, and my society compels me to see Jesus as an object that I can turn toward my own advantage? No. This is what we have to address. This is the normative claim. Our final question of this 3-2 section deals with the economy. Why does your system create economic conditions that are both just and profitable to the individual and society writ large? Father Sirico will speak first. I want to unpack some of the things I've already kind of said in an enclosed way. Uh, first is that the the nature of the human person is what produces the economic reality. So let's consider for a moment who, who human beings are. We are created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, on our hearts is inscribed uh, eternity. We are a combination of both the dust of the earth, that is, we are corporeal, and we have breathed into us the breath of life. We are also social, but we're also individual. From the first moment of our conception, we are distinct from our mothers even though we exist within our mothers. We are in relation to our mothers, which tells us that we're social. These tensions are the human reality. And then you combine that with the fact that we are endowed with reason, that that is how we survive, that our relationship to the material world, our relationship to nature, is primarily a relationship not like that of animals, which is a relationship of instinct, but in a relationship of reason. It is through reason that we mix our labor with nature and draw out from nature the things that sustain us. Let's remember that wealth does not exist in a state of nature. Natural resources are not wealth. For natural resources to become wealth, they have to be transformed transformed into human service. And the question of the value, the question of what gives wealth, is not dependent upon the opinion of a politician or even an entrepreneur. It is based on the use and the value of the person who comes to the market and says, I need this, and I need it now, and I'm willing to exchange resources for it. It is not the case that there is a disjunction between prices and values because values are what give rise to prices. The consumer determines the price of a thing in a free market. 
in a manipulated market and the kind of financial markets or mercantilist markets that we hear described by socialists, that's not the case. But in a truly free market, that's the reality uh, that we must confront. So when we consider this engagement of the human person with the material world, we see coming out of that a collaboration or what Adam Smith called the division of labor among people, so that what is happening is not a class conflict, but a massive collaboration when people are free to enter and exit from that relationship. The thing that most often stops people from that is some form of coercion at the hands of the state or of violence. Father Sabrigo is not grasping here in the description of price is, is that he assumes a direct correlation between price and value. So it's just the subjective valuation of the purchaser. But if that was the case, then the commodity would just disappear. If there was a perfect correlation between value and price, then the commodity would just disappear in the exchange. Because it would be because it would be realized, the value would be realized. And the reason it doesn't is because value is a social. It's a, it's a social category. It has to do, the value happens as a result of the things that are happening at the social totality, not between seller and, not in the direct relationship between seller and buyer. And I think this is the reason why it's easy simply for Father Sabrina to present it as though like what's happening is some sort of contractual transaction between the boss and the laborer, between the buyer and the seller. There's a sense in which that's true, yes, but it's completely obviating the valuation process. Right? The reason why you can trade things on the stock market has to do with the fact that value at that social totality level is something that can be transacted. And that's what we're talking about. At that level, you and I are its objects. And we all have to participate in that process of valuation in order to just simply survive. Now, um, you can also hear, and this is what I hope that maybe you can come away from this, like in the way that he described the human person as in this tension between individuality and sociality, right? That's the commodity, that's what it is. It has this concrete particularity and this universal sociality dimension. And it, it functions precisely in the, the shuttling back and forth between those two dimensions. To describe the human person in that way is already to have digested your own self-understanding as a commodity and to see your personhood in that way. This is what we're fighting for, to stop. This is dehumanizing. And this is, what, this is the reason why this is so significant. And it's not about bureaucrats making decisions. It's about human freedom and the maximization of human freedom and our own and taking back the agency, which is now subscribed to this, this whole abstract thing that controls our lives and makes us interact with one another in just this way. So, okay, yeah, I got more. So, um, again, for the socialist, social value should not be exchange value. <coughs> but the meeting of human needs. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about 
That basically, what that means is the mediation of material goods ought to be subject to one's own self-determination. This is what I was getting at when I thought were my last words here. Not subject to the domination of this abstract processes through which exchange value expands and grows. That's my first point with regard to economics. Second, the second point, though, is something that I've not really had a chance to point to yet. It, it's something that Moshe Pistone talks about. Um, and the, the, the way that I'm talking about Marx here is, is dependent upon my reading of Pistone, who I think is extremely important. And he talks about the treadmill effect of value production. It's, it's quite easy to grasp. So let's say that across the world, the basic standard for corn harvesting is 100 pounds per hour, and I can get $100 for that 100 pounds. Well, if I figure out a way to harvest the same amount in a half an hour, then I've doubled production, and I can claim twice as much. I have an advantage on other farmers, right? I can potentially at least collect twice as much. But once my technique basically has become generalized, then 100, 100 pounds for 30 minutes becomes the new standard. And I can no longer collect twice as much. Now, everybody producing corn has to do 200 pounds in one hour just to get the same $100 that we used to get for 100. This is the dynamism of capitalism, right? This is how it generates more and more and more value. Now somebody has to come up with some way to do 200 pounds in a half an hour, right, and so on and so on. Now, this is where capitalism's dynamism comes from. But what we're doing is we're getting increasing quantities, material quantities of corn, but diminishing standards of value. You can imagine a situation where you have all the corn you could possibly imagine, and it would have no value at all. Now this opens up the possibility for us to see that human life doesn't have to be that way. You can produce material goods and distribute them to meet human needs and not be chasing this bad infinite of ever-expanding exchange value which has absolutely nothing to do with meeting human material needs. This is really, really weird, but it's the world that we live in. <clears throat> How are human values met if human beings can't express what their needs are in, in a market society? Uh, the market is not abstract, it's just quite the opposite of being abstract. It's the most concrete thing you can see. You, you pick up the object, the commodity. The commodity is the thing that you say you need and you look at it and determine, yes, this I need, or I don't need it at this price, I'll wait until uh, the price comes down. Or I don't need it yet, I'll get it at another time. The dynamism that we just heard caricatured and condemned is in fact human progress. It's the wellspring of human progress. It's why we are living right now in the moment of the greatest financial prosperity, material prosperity in all of human history. Let's hope we can keep it if we keep the regulators off of our creativity and the taxers out of our pockets. This is progress. This is 
<clears throat> this is the phonograph that becomes the radio, that becomes the record, that becomes the DVD, that becomes the CD, that becomes the internet. This is what makes all of our lives so much easier. This is what accounts for the greatest uh, 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 explosion of material progress in all of human history, evidenced by the increasing number of human beings on the planet, which I suspect the homophobia, I'm sorry, the humanophobia of the socialists would decry in favor of the zero-sum game that they advocate, because they see the world as essentially scarce and essentially in need of redistribution, rather than essentially dynamic and creative, so as to meet the needs and the desires of the human heart. The trick is for us not to idolatrize this. That's, that's the challenge of the Christian, and I suggest to you there's no bureaucracy in the world that can instill in us that kind of spirituality. We've reached our final section and penultimate segment of the night entitled Live Debate. This is a 20-minute section which will be led by two questions. I will pose the first question. A speaker will have 90 seconds, a minute and a half, to answer the question. His opponent will have 90 seconds. At that point, I will move the podium off to the side. Gentlemen, if you want to uh, hold the microphones you have, um, if they work, if they do not work, I think that's not a problem. It's a pretty small room, which is nice. We'll be able to hear ourselves just fine. But after those 90 seconds each, I will move the podium to the side, step off, and allow our two debaters seven minutes of pure live debate. If you've seen a presidential uh, election debate, you know what this, this looks like. <laughs> As we sports fans enjoy referees in football or basketball letting them play, I aim to do the same. Even if the defensive back tackles the receiver in the end zone and the ball's nowhere near, I do not want to step in. I will allow these two excellent speakers and thinkers to police themselves, so to speak, in those seven minutes of open debate. The first question, the first topic, deals with the family. Why is your system, how does your system aid in the construction of what can be defined as, quote, a healthy family philosophy? Or, in further focus, why is your system most favorable and or most, most supportive of the family? How is it so? Please give us details. Why? And what are the larger and mo most important aspects to know? So once more, the opening speaker will speak for a minute and a half. His opponent will speak for a minute and a half. This podium, I will move the podium. They'll have seven minutes of free debate. Father Sirico will speak first. I've already alluded to the socialist vision of the family as expressed by Marx and Engels, and I'd be very interested to hear what Mr. Davis has to say about that, whether he does believe that the nuclear family reinforces and depends upon private property. So in the sense, and I don't want to say well, where I do believe in socialism is in the family. <laughs> that is non-coercive socialism, where you can actually know people and know their needs. But that requires an intimate knowledge of people, not a, an abstract knowledge of an entire society. In point of fact, uh, 
the human person's nature is expressed in the social unit of the family, because here both their individuality and their sociality uh, come together in the conjugal union of marriage. This is where uh, the self-gift of the one to the other, lest that be called commodifying, uh, is seen with the resulting uh, birth of children. In order for those children to be sustained, they need this kind of arrangement where people know and have uh, an innate interest in the well-being of those children so that they can be formed in a moral life and themselves become productive. Private property is an essential part of that. It's not the totality of it, but it's an essential part of it for the family, and that's why I think my system is better suited to the family rather than the Marxist notion of abolishing the family as we know it because of its relation to private property. Well, Ingalls on the family, I mean, Ingalls is never a good interpreter of Marx, right? I mean, this is what I would say about this. Um, the reason is because, for exactly the same reason as what I was saying about how it is that what we see is the essence of commodity society when we remove private property and markets, right? Which you see in totalitarian communist countries. I mean, it, I mean I'm sorry that it's news to you, but it was said in the 40s by, by Friedrich Pollock, right? It's called state social, uh, state capitalism. And they identified it as, they, I mean, this is the problem that, that communists were wrestling with at that time. Why is it that we got rid of private property and markets and we still have capitalist society? This is what this was, right? Well, the reason, the way this applies to the family specifically is because, I mean, socialists are not against the family. That's, that's a silly, right? Be, I mean, if you remove the family and you still leave the, the relations of domination in place, then all you've done is made society you know, one big nuclear family, right? In the way, I mean, in, in, the, in, this form, in these forms of domination, right? If you think of it as like women being dominated within the traditional family unit, right? Which is a criticism that was raised from, by many socialists from the left. Eliminating the family doesn't eliminate that. All it does is make every woman subject to every man. That's not what socialists are talking about. Socialists are talking about transforming relations of domination into relations of self-determination. That's what the criticism is. So when it comes to questions about the family, right, this is how we would begin to address that question. But in this context, it's a bit of a red herring in particular, because I mean, imagine, right, Father Sirico being asked, how does your system support the expansion of trade unions, for example, right? It's, it's not that those two things are opposed to one another, but that you, you can't actually begin to grasp the ways in which what is being criticized at the social level, right, implies a certain kind of answer already. What I mean in that case is trade unions have just as much a basis in Catholic social teaching as does the family. And if you want to talk about the principle of subsidiarity, what better way to talk about it, actually, than the workers who work in a business, we're going to talk about people who know how to make decisions about what they need, the workers in a business owning it. That's what we're talking about here, right? But what we have 
with regard to the question of the family comes in, in play, particularly because of these particular this particular understanding of the way that socialists are understood with regard to the question. I'm sorry, I had some more to say and I got my time. Oh, no. uh, I, I think I'm still in three minute mode. No, you're perfect. So, sorry. Now, at, at this point, uh, we'll move to this seven minute free debate where you introduce yourselves as you see fit. <laughs> well, I, I just want to uh, pick up on this uh, statement about, I, I didn't quite write it down, but you said that Catholic social teaching is as, uh, that there's an equivalence or something between in Catholic social teaching trade unions and the family. No, I just. What, how did you put that? No, 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 what I said was, with regard to the question of like, how do you support the family, that, that having a role to play in Catholic social teaching, right, specifically, you could just as well frame the question in terms of how does your system support no, no, but it was the next part, that when, when you kind of said that uh, uh, unions and family and Catholic social teaching were somehow um, equivalent. Yeah, Catholic social teaching supports the right of workers yes. to, to unions. But, but the, first of all, the, the teaching on the family goes back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, and the teaching on the family uh, uh, is a sacrament of the Catholic Church, right? The marriage, matrimony between man and a woman and, and the family. Uh, that, you, that's not the, what I'm The discussion of unions only comes up in the 19th century, and it's qualified. No, hold, no, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. No, my point is that it's a red herring in a discussion about what we're talking about, because you could just as well talk about trade unions, but we're not talking about that. No, but what I'm saying is if you wanted to talk about trade unions, you have to understand that there are limits that the church puts on trade unions. They must not be political. They are only, uh, they're not obligatory. They are predicated, the whole premise of the right of uh, trade unions is the right to association, and that means the right not to associate. So it's, it's qualified, and I think that trade unions are very valuable, especially in socialist countries, uh, where they're usually not allowed, as we saw in Poland. I think you're misunderstanding my question, but perhaps, that's fine. So. I'm just letting you have at me now. <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, are we talking about the family? Uh, anything you want to talk about. Okay. So, here's the thing about, let me go back to this point that you made about the expansion of wealth, the dynamism, of, and how it is that produces a great deal of wealth. Right. I mean, you're exactly right about that. I think that's what I was describing. Yeah. But the part that you left out is that what it produces at the same time, concretely, Right. Abstractly, it produces a great deal of exchange value. Concretely, what it produces is a whole lot of super superfluous people. There are no superfluous people. No, absolutely. What, what, what it does, what this system does, is produce food for them. No, it, it produce, produces cars for them. It produces air conditioning for them. No, but it, it produces, produces a lot of people who have no work, who have no access to the means to sustain their lives. When they have no access to work, it's because some artificial barrier has come in and prevented them, whether it's immigration laws, whether it's uh, minimum wage laws, whether it's uh, various kinds of subsidies that distort the market and uh, distort the, because uh, the market, of course, is a market for labor as well. People bring value to themselves or, or to, their, to the business and the service they offer others if they're left free to do that. It's when you interfere with it, either with regulation or taxation or another way, that you have the people who are surplus 
uh, labor. So explain that to me in the, in the cycle of valuation that I was describing. Because if what you do is you wind up with something that's consistently decreasing in value, while it's expanding in material wealth, you can produce, right? We can produce it with machines. Yes, but that's only part of it. You see, it's only part of what? Of the whole process of productivity. Because as things are reduced in value, new things come online. So the, the shoemakers and the horseshoe makers in England were displaced, and this is what, the, and here in the United States, they were afraid. What are all these horseshoe uh, people going to do without jobs with the automobile? Now we employ so many more people in the uh, automobile industry than were ever uh, employed in maintaining horses. That happens in technology and in human beings are the center of the economy. What you're not grasping here is your assumption is that it expands at the level of needs, right? But that's not true because what human beings are able to do on the cycle of valuation this is the whole thing. Industrial production is capitalist production. Its whole purpose of being able to produce more value depends upon its ability to be able to extract that value from people so that it doesn't need them anymore. It extracts, no, that's, that's not the case no, at all. No, it's it the way it works. No, that's specifically what happens. But it's happens. not an accurate description of a free market economy. A free market economy exists to produce things for people who need them. Who tell you that they need them? Where the is fact this that, market? What? Where is this market? It's operative in part in the United States. It's operative in part in the West. Well, no, what you're describing is an ideal type. Uh, I'm describing. Uh, there is no ideal type. I mean, the, the heavens outside exactly. man's reach, or what's the heaven for? And that's another point of difference between the two of us. Your socialist idea is ultimately utopian. You judge no. the market economy because of its failures. No, it's an accurate description of the way in which it functions. What you're doing, what your description of the market depends upon eliding specifically what the market and other forms of capitalist production fail. If that were the case, how do you account for the fact that those, again, we're, 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 we're talking about um, mixed systems. There is no ideal. There is no, no ideal. You're not going to say there's an ideal socialist arrangement. I'm not going to say there's an ideal free market arrangement. But on the whole, when you look at the continuum, how do you explain the fact that these societies that have less taxation, less regulation, less bureaucracy and government intervention are the more prosperous that have a greater longevity of their populations versus then, the more command and control economies. But I'm not advocating for command and control economies. Well, what is socialism? It, it's the overcoming of the commodity form. It's the abolition of private property. No, it's not. Because I just described, this is what I've said over and over again. The abolition of so, private property. So you, property. You, don't, you don't accept Marx? No, this is what Marx says. He says that at the end, that there will be the withering no, no, of the no, 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 no. There's no. no dictatorship of the proletariat. No, no. What Marx is talking about is the abolition of the value form. The value form itself is exchange value. He's describing the process by which value turns human beings into things specifically in order to valorize itself. Uh, this, and this is what we're talking about. With a materialist ideology. No, you don't get rid of that by eliminating private property. That continues. This is what we see in totalitarian communist nations. What I'm saying. You don't get rid of this by removing the market. 
But what you can do is that you can see that at work in markets. Because you're right. I do bring, come to the market and say, I need this thing. Please give it to me. But you have to describe that from the other side. The other side of the process of valuation. Which, which says, is where, I give it to you so that you're giving me something. Yes, yeah, you're using me to fulfill your purposes just you, as You can I. say that about any relationship no. between two people. No. It, it, That's this, not is, true. this is where you get the notion of saying that uh, uh, free market and healthcare, commodifying healthcare, uh, uh, exists off the illness, no. makes money off the illness of people. No. Restaurants, Make money off Look, of the hunger. A feudal lord dominated a peasant. That was a transparent form of domination, and it was exploitative. It wasn't commodified. He knew that he was being exploited, and the feudal lord knew that he was exploiting him. It was a transparent social relation. It wasn't a fetishized one. No, it, they both knew they were able to. It was commodified because the harvest was given to the uh, lord. No, that's not a commodity. That, that is a commodity. A commodity is a thing that you use. No, it wasn't produced specifically in order to take it to a market. Such a, a lively, excellent exchange I'm sure could continue farther, deeper, deeper into the night. One question spawning other counter questions. So again, truly, sincerely excellent. I can't wait to see how you attack this next topic which is the exact same format, 90 seconds, 90 seconds, seven minute of live debate. And it's really the final question that our competitors will address to you before they make their closing remarks. So this is it before it's really it. This deals with feasibility, implementation, and effects. If implemented within society, it, why is your system a good, if not quote, the best? And again, I leave that to you to define what those terms mean option for that society and its citizens' well-being. What does it mean to implement your system into a society? What is the feasibility of doing so? How does it, how does it actually look? And are there examples at the ready you can point to? If a society does successfully implement your system, what are the long-term effects and benefits of doing so? One of the biggest things I think all of us are frustrated with, politicians, public intellectuals, is they talk about a lot of things without ever offering concrete hope or a concrete plan or proposal, I'm asking our two brilliant speakers to put together their thoughts into a program. Explain to us clearly why your system is not just better, but what it would look like. What would this actually do for the people gathered here waiting with, um, with bated breath to find out well, what's in it for me, so to speak. Why is this better for, for me and for all of us? So in this section, Dr. Davis will speak first for 90 seconds, followed by Father Sirico for 90 seconds, I will once again move the podium to the side and they will have at it for seven minutes. Dr. Davis. One, bit, one point just before, before I move on to this particular question. I just want to call attention to the point that Father Sirico made about there not being wealth in the natural world apart from human labor. That's specifically the association of wealth with value, abstract value. Right? That's the distinction between material wealth and value that I'm calling attention to. And it's vitally important to grasp it because it's the social form of life under capitalism. Now, with respect to the question of feasibility, as with the question of the family, this too is a loaded question from a socialist because we already live in a capitalist society. What is there to implement, right? Uh, so the question doesn't really even apply to capitalism. What it's really saying is, so the socialist thing 
how realistic is it? Right. So um, this is why most socialists are uh, revolutionaries. Now, uh, the, the term revolutionary um, is oftentimes associated with violence. Father Sirico uh, invoked that fear with the fist thing at the beginning. Uh, the fist is a sign of solidarity. By the way, pistis in Greek basically means solidarity. So uh, one need not be violent or coercive in order to show one's solidarity as the cross of Christ itself demonstrates in his pistis. But what we don't actually have any doubt about, though, is that because capitalism is not just a system of production and distribution, but it is a social totality. When socialists talk about overcoming this way in which we are all forced to use each other, those of you that are in college now will have to leave this. Right, right now, your time isn't claimed in the same way that it will be unless you happen to be working. Right? Before capitalism, people basically lived lives like that. Right? But capitalism compels you to live in a certain way. It claims your time claims those things in certain ways, and it does that specifically in order to produce value the way it does. When we talk about this, we call it revolutionary because it means a total transformation of society, that aspect of society. It is a coercive aspect. That's the whole point, right? But as Paulo Freire said, a truly revolutionary act is always an act of love because it's carried out specifically on behalf of everyone. And if it's not an act of love, it's not a revolutionary act. That's why one way of thinking of the resurrection itself is as a world-transforming revolution. I think I'm probably way over. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I lost track of the clock. <clears throat> um, I uh, use the metaphor of the fist. I mean, come on. <laughs> We're talking about socialism here, right? Let's understand what we're talking about. We're talking about class struggle, class warfare. We're talking about a dictatorship of the proletariat. And when you see a fist, that doesn't mean solidarity. It means a punch in the face. And that may not be done by a particular individual, and I'm not accusing my colleague here, I hope not, of advocating violence, at least direct violence. But the very institution of socialism is a violent institution because it says we need to all share our wealth and if you don't share it, we'll take it from you or we'll make a law that will put you in jail or we will come and take over your factory or in whatever other way that is going to happen. That at the core of the socialist idea is not the socialism of the early church that says everything that is mine is yours. And that is a disposition we must have. We must touch things lightly. We must be generous. And that's why when we do the, the uh, demographic studies of who gives in society, you find that it is the advocates of a free economy, limited government, who are the most generous. They give more to the poor. They volunteer more time. They even donate more blood. And if you don't believe me, I, I refer you to uh, Arthur Brooks's book called who gives in society? Uh, and you'll see he's done a, an exhaustive sociological study of this. No, the fist means 
it really is at the core because it's saying we have to force people to be good, to be generous with one another. And I suggest to you that it's a far less revolutionary, social transformative idea than is Christianity. The hard work of Christianity is not to coerce people, but to convert people. It's not to impose upon people things, but to compellingly propose to people to surrender their life and their wealth on behalf of their discipleship to Jesus Christ. Instead of decrying the rich, we should help them to understand that it is their vocation and the way in which they serve others by being productive, by being responsible, by being creative. It is, I suggest to you, the parable of the talents, where each person is given a talent entrusted with a talent according to their ability and they're expected to be creative and productive with those talents so as to bring it back to the master to be received into the master's presence for all eternity. At this moment, gentlemen, I invite you one more time for our final live debate, seven minutes of open exchange. I, I don't know what you're going to do when you realize that I'm not interested in bureaucracies or well, how are you doing anything. The, the, just practically, how are you going well, to... Well, no, what I'm more interested in is what it is that you would have to say against socialism once this, this, this idea of bureaucracies, imposition, control is done away with. Well, I, I just think that... Because I, I are put it to you, right? Because what we're talking about here is what Weber calls, you know, instrumental reason, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll notice that everything that I have been re rejecting here is specifically that. That's what value is. That's what exchange value is. So when you describe bureaucrats, what you're rejecting with bureaucrats, that's what I'm rejecting with exchange. Well, then how are you going to implement a system that? Uh, I don't know, high taxation or whatever way in which you're going to get money out of people, out of the rich, and redistribute it to the poor. Who's going to be doing that on a practical level? Who's going to be writing the checks? Well, this Who's is going the point that I've been making money? is that about the way in which there's a there's a red herring and a, and, a, and a loading of the dice here insofar as we live in a capitalist society. Because your question presupposes a commodity society as an answer. The question that I'm interested in you addressing is yes. why is it that you're so invested in this commodity thing? Because it seems so terrible. Well, it, it, by commodity, I mean this, the things that people need for their lives. Absolutely. And right. what I described... Was the bread that Jesus produced on the mount a commodity? No, absolutely not. Because Jesus didn't live in a commodity society. We do. Well, of course he lived in a commodity mean. society. Of course he did. He, uh, any number of his parables talk about commodities, about the production of oh, produce and no, things no, no. like that. Those are commodities I mean, that a, people would buy. The merchant goes and gets the pearl of oh, great price. There have oh, a commodity society and the fact that commodities exist are two different things. What I'm describing, I mean, there have always been commodities. I mean, you, you're pretty so, when you take it. You, so you have a lot of commodities among a lot of people. When you talk about a commodity society. You're and that's not a commodity society? When the whole of society is mediated by the exchange of commodities, that is a world of well, How else are they going to get what they need? There's all kinds of ways. 
You know, it doesn't have to be through a commodity no. exchange. I mean, I could live on a farm and produce what I need for sustenance. Everything. Yeah. I mean, you need to read the first chapter of Adam Smith, <laughs> The Well of Nations. You're going to yeah. make shoes. You know how much you couldn't make a pair of shoes no. in, in yeah. two years. This is, no, no. That's, but human You'd beings. have to go and trade with somebody. But human beings have done it forever. Collaborating with each other. Right. Dividing their labor. Not. And exchanging their, that's exactly no, what it is. No, it's not. See, this is the thing. Give me some that, village. Look, okay, watch, watch what's happening here, right? What you do is you take something that's historically specific about capitalist life, and you present it as natural, because that's how it appears to us. <coughs> no, there are all kinds of people for thousands and millions of years that did not live in commodity society. Who lived in subsistence circumstances. Absolutely. Barely able to live. But feudalism is not a commodity society either. Barely able, uh, eight billion people on this planet are going to make their own farms? No. But, and feed but, themselves? Right, but see, look, here's I the I wouldn't thing. exist two days on a farm. My question. <laughs> With all due respect to you farmers in the audience. Well, my question is, why are you so invested in this particularly destructive and perverse relationship? I, I don't think it's destructive and perverse. I think it's an outgrowth of human nature. It's what Leo XIII spoke about. Commodities? About commodities. Human, have you read the encyclical? So, have you read Rare and Horrible? So, what you're saying private property? That so people can have their own. Private property and personal property are not the same thing. No, no, no. I understand. The personal property is the toothbrush. There's always been personal, personal property is the fish. The means of production is the net. You want the net. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. That's what Mark said. Unless you're excising. Okay, you guys heard me, right? I've said repeatedly that seizing the means of production does not eliminate commodity societies. Right? This is what I'm getting at. Like, if you can't caricature the position, then you can't actually attack it. We're not having a conversation. Here's the thing. Commodity society is historically unique, and it requires, it only arises specifically because we generalize the ability to exclude one another from the means of subsistence. You don't have to do that. That's called the class struggle. That, no, it's not. Sure. That's not what we're talking about. It is class warfare, but it's okay. not. But class it's, warfare. Let me finish. But it's not waged on behalf of the poor. It's waged by the rich on the poor. Because, I mean, in, in Europe, in England, you had a common right to property to grow the food that you couldn't provide yourself otherwise. These people enclosed it, cutting people off from access. You, you don't see that your entire taxonomy is predicated on the inversion of, of Hegel. No, and because and, it's and not promoting this class conflict that all societies again a caricature again a caricature. I'm trying to describe what you what you no, yourself no, you're trying just to, said. No, you have certain assumptions and caricatures that you are deploying over and over. This is not Hegel. This isn't. This is not the inversion of Hegel. It's the indictment of Hegel. The, the Mar Marx and uh, reverse thing. No, no. The capitalist society is Hegelian society. I grant you the parts of it are, mostly in the universities. No, like the, but, <laughs> sorry, I'm in the university. No, look, look, at, look at capital. Look at how it works. It's self-valorizing. It's got 
Now, it, the reason I know this is, you know, I, I didn't mention this earlier just because we've had so much to go on. I was involved in the left in the 70s. I knew Jane Fonda and Tom Hagen. I marched for the farm workers. I was involved in the feminist movement, the gay movement, and the anti-war movement, and, and all of the rest of it. And, and this is what we believed. This is what we, we, and when we raised our fists, we hoped that it would intimidate the capitalists. Well, I mean, I can play this game too. Well, I'm I mean, sure you have I was, a better. I mean, I was like a high school got wanted to be a part of the Heritage Foundation, and this is what I believe. Well, we we can no, uh, no we I'm, can invite you I'm back into the fold. <laughs> no, listen, if you want to just if you want to re-describe the way that I've described and address the specific claim that I've made about well, normatively. Because that's what I'm saying. Well, I, I think your definition of commodity, so we had a, you, you're hovering. No, no, no. No, 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 he's hovering. I am. <laughs> uh, I, can I finish my sentence? Yes, but have last two sentences, and then we have closing statements. I promise you have a full five minutes to really okay. screw in the mail. It's just but that your definition of commodity is commodity society, not a commodity. I guess I, I said it before. When you have everybody who's in need of commodities, and they exchange those commodities with one another, that's called a commodity society. When the only way in which you have access to the things that you need to survive requires that you be objectified by another. I don't think this is objectifying. I think values are subjective. In, this, in, in the We're economic not sense. Value. I'm not talking about value. Thank I'm, you, gentlemen. Can you continue now? Okay. So I've been informed. I've been informed that there will be not, there will be no time to pose questions here in this room. Fret not, fear not. Afterwards, we will be reconvening over at the St. Augustine Center. If anyone wants to inform and engage with these two um, excellent speakers, ask some questions there. We've reached the last section. Ten minutes. It's going to be five minutes each. There are no stipulations here. I have not asked them to prepare anything. I've said five minutes. Give us your final kind of remarks why your system uh, is best. Dr. Davis will speak first. So let me uh, conclude uh, by reiterating the point that I, we cannot make an argument in favor of capitalism that doesn't require us to violate basic Christian moral commitments. It may be possible to defend capitalism on utilitarian and consequentialist grounds. That's, that's what Father Speaker is doing here, that its dynamism produces the greatest material wealth that we've ever known. Don't dispute that. But even those claims must be defended against normative claims about human dignity. They must, in other words, take the form that, or take the form of a defense of the right to, or the privilege to violate human dignity by instrumentalizing persons in order, or for the sake of, the production of exchange value without explicit consideration of human need, or in spite of it. Think of what a peculiar situation this is. I know that those of you that work, you know what I'm talking about. When you talk about the claim that's made on your time, when you talk about how it is that you, your freedom is inhibited by the claim that your employer has on you, when you cannot get access to the healthcare you need because someone has cordoned you off from it, 
is very, very simple. I mean, you can talk about the, what markets can do for you all day long, but what it boils down to is the exclusion of you and the need for that market to objectify you for its own purposes, rather than your human need. That's what we're talking about. It's very simple, and it does not have to be this way. Right? Capitalism causes us to mistake this for something that has to be. This is the reason why I said earlier that it's an idolatrous religion. Because it looks real. It's a false god. It looks ultimate. It has metaphysical qualities about it. But it's all an illusion. Think about what a peculiar situation this is where we're forced to treat one another as objects, not just without our knowledge of doing so, but even when we don't want to. I'm not free to stop doing that. Think of what this says to us about our celebrations of the Eucharist. At the very least, it means that what we believe is really happening there between Jesus and us and between one another, that it's only true in some abstract sense, a formal sense, that even Luther himself would have not countenanced. The most pressing question for the Christian capitalist remains the religious one, which identifies capital as an idol, and the commodity as its sacrament. And the Christian capitalist simply has to answer the question of just where to draw that line. And I want to close with a word of caution, because I've adumbrated this caution in my comments earlier about fascism and totalitarianism. I think Christian socialists are especially vulnerable to the appeal of reactionary socialism, by which Christians recognize that the spiritual dimension of life is often bound up with reductive, instrumentalized reason, technologization, quantification. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about bureaucrats. I, I hate that stuff too. Christians hate that stuff, right? Cottage core stuff, right? Like you want to get back to artisanal breads and stuff like that, right? The qualitative dimension, recuperated. Christian socialism has a way in which it can kind of fetishize those things in a certain kind of way, but miss the fact that those things too are a part of the circulation of the commodity. It's not just a matter of affirming the qualitative dimension over against the quantitative dimension, pitting them against one. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of thing that he's invoking when he's talking about class conflict and stuff, right? That the poor are engaged in warfare against the rich or something like that, right? No, what socialism is about is about putting that whole dialectical frame into question and overcoming it because of the ways in which it, it, it inhibits human life. It, inhi it inhibits human dignity. It inhibits the possibility of democracy. And so when we talk about these things, don't just simply flee away from industrialization towards the, the you know, a, a Cristina Rossetti poem or something like that, right? But, but understand that even the ways in which, the things that we want to affirm oftentimes are bound up with the ways in which we, our lives are commodified and put that whole frame in question. We have to exercise critical rationality in just this way. One way of putting it is, well, no, that'll just confuse me. So I'll just end there. <laughs>
Some people love the poor so much that they want to make systems to ensure that there are more poor people. <laughs> and then someone like me comes along and says, no, we, we have to, if we're going to feed the poor, we have to do it with more than our sentiments and our sentimentality. We have to know how to put together a bakery or a series of bakeries or build industries that know how to clothe the poor, feed them and make shelter and systems of healthcare and the like. Uh, this is why the material world is important, not because we settle for materialism, certainly not because we idolatize it, because we worship it. There's a difference. You know, Jesus didn't just call the poor. There's a significant number of wealthy people who ministered with Jesus and enabled him. The women who walked along the way with him, Joseph of Arimathea, and where in the world did our Lord get that seamless garment? I mean, these are the kinds of things that are just out of the question. I have a book coming out in the spring on the parables. You know, you just have to think about these things in their whole dimension. And we have to love the poor concretely because we find Christ in the poor. You know, this denunciation of exchange and then the invocation of the Eucharist is a misnomer. Because anyone of you who has a familiarity with the Latin of the Mass, which the Mass is based upon the Latin, will notice the word scambio precisely in the, what we translate as the exchange of gifts. It's where human labor draws from nature the bread of the earth and fashions it and makes something from human labor and has a transcendental scambio with God, a transcendental exchange where God now gives back to the Eucharist his very presence, which we could not make. I don't see my relationship with those with whom I exchange goods and services as an objectification, but as a collaboration, one with the other. Uh, um, uh, it is astounding to see a socialist, a self-professed socialist, discard all of the major categories of Karl Marx, preeminent of which is, is the uh, notion of class struggle, class warfare, which I'll come back to in a moment. Let me say that the vision, the Catholic vision of the good and healthy and virtuous society is based upon a principle called the principle of subsidiarity. It is where needs are best met at the most local level of their existence. There's a role for the state, but it's a circumscribed role. There's a role for the state, but the state is not the normative actor in social relations. It has a subsidiary, a helping effect. And that people are helped only at levels of their need. And that the state does not intervene into the business economy or into the family or into social organizations unless there's a manifest failure of some sort and then only temporarily. I think the person who put the skids under Marxism better than anyone else was not an economist, but was that little wrinkled nun in Calcutta. And here's what she said. We have no right to judge the rich. We do not believe in class warfare. We believe in class encounter. 
where the rich save the poor, and the poor save the rich. This is the free and virtuous society that I am defending. This is the free and virtuous society that the Acton Institute has been promoting and trying to help people like you understand through various courses, which you can access through acton.org. This is the kind of society that we need to defend and is worthy of our defense because it represents the potential for a civilization of love rather than a civilization of conflict and of intimidation. It is a civilization of encounter with mutual help and support, as Mother Teresa said, where the rich save the poor and the poor save the rich. Closing, I'd like to thank all of you so much for coming. If you'd like to reconvene across the street, uh, please do so to ask some questions. I hope you received a lot of food for thought. And please allow me to close with one request. Please give both our participants a hearty round of applause. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Jacques.